Thanks very much, uh, Kyle and the praise team, and good morning. Good to see you today. That was, that was a bit quiet. You can tell that the, the Easter holidays are coming to an end, can't you? Um, but listen, it's good to be here again with you today. Um, always a, a joy to, to, to share fellowship with uh, yourself. And um, I, I really am delighted to be here and to share God's word with you. Um, I want to turn you to the book of Genesis uh, and chapter 37. Genesis and chapter 37. This is right at the beginning of the narrative about Joseph. And we're just going to read the first 11 verses. And, and even within these verses alone, we, we have much to take encouragement from, but also to be challenged about as well. Uh, and I trust that that would be the case this morning as we look at God's word. And that might even encourage you to head home yourself and to look at the, the rest of this story in your own devotional time. So let's read God's word. Genesis 37 from verse 1 to 11. This is God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bound down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Uh, this is the word of God. Let me just pray very briefly. Father, we, we thank you for all that's taken place already this morning. And Lord, we're excited. We're full of anticipation to hear how you are going to speak to us now through your word. And so we pray that you would speak that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to all that you would have for us to hear, and that, Lord, you would work within us to change us and transform us more and more into the people that you want us to be, that we might bring you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the, the 90s, there was a, a kids program that I really loved uh, called Art Attack. Does anyone remember it? 
Okay, with a few hands. Admittedly, you need to be a certain age to, to remember it. Uh, if you've never seen it, or if you've never even heard of it, let me just tell you what it's about. Um, it's basically an art program that was hosted by a guy called Neil Buchanan, and he would basically spend every episode showing you different pieces of art that you could then go and do at home, uh, which I did, uh, much to my, my parents' frustration with the amount of ma mess that I made. Um, but even though he spent most of his time looking at different pieces of art you could do at home, um, one of the most popular uh, segments of that program was what was known as his big art. Okay? And so what he would do, he would go into a big green open field and he would start grabbing random items and start throwing them on the ground. Uh, and basically this is what you would see from, from our perspective. It would look a complete mess. You wouldn't have a clue what he was doing. From the Fuhrer's perspective, it just looked as if he was literally throwing random items on the ground. But when he finally finished what he was doing, the camera would pan out and you'd get a, a bird's eye view of his picture. And all of a sudden it made perfect sense. You could see the masterpiece that he was creating in the mess. And this is really a helpful illustration of God's sovereignty, isn't it? You see, from our perspective on the ground level, there's moments in our lives when everything seems a mess and we struggle to make sense of what's going on, particularly when things go wrong in our lives. Yet from God's perspective, he sees the bigger picture, and to him it makes perfect sense. And if ever there was a story that illustrated this truth, it would undoubtedly be the story of Joseph. For there were many moments in Joseph's life when things looked like a meaningless mess. But from God's perspective, everything made perfect sense. He not only saw the bigger picture, but he was also working through these apparent messy situations to bring his perfect plans to fruition. You see, the book of Genesis not only records God's creation of all things, but it also shows us mankind's fall, how we rebelled against him, how we sinned against him, and that perfect relationship with him was broken. Yet alongside this, Genesis also begins to unpack God's gracious plan to rescue his people from their sin. We get a hint of this in the, the Garden of Eden when God promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. We then get another hint of this gospel plan when God promised that through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The same promise was then reaffirmed to Abraham's son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob who then had 12 sons, men who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was Joseph, a man whom God would sovereignly work through to not only preserve his chosen people through a period of famine, but to also preserve his gospel promise to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through Abraham's seed. 
And we see the beginning of this story unfolding here in Genesis 37 as we're introduced to Joseph, a hated brother and a rejected prophet. And that's going to be our roadmap for this morning, okay? We're just going to work through the narrative very quickly, and then I want to spend the majority of our time at the end applying it into our lives today, okay? I'm not sure if it is working. Yep. Okay, so firstly, let's look at verses 1 to 4, a hated brother. As we dive into the narrative here, we learn straight away that Joseph was a 17-year-old who was training to be a shepherd. For we're told in verse 2 that he was pastoring the flock with some of his older brothers. Now, there's nothing unusual at this point in the story. Joseph was merely learning the the family business from his, his older siblings. But as he watched them working, he obviously noticed something immoral in their behavior. Because we're told that he brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, in a lot of ways, that shouldn't come as a surprise to us if we know the background of this family. For Joseph's brothers certainly had form for immoral behavior. I mean, Reuben, he had slept with his stepmother. Simeon and Levi, they had committed premeditated genocide. Then later on in this chapter, Joseph's brothers showed us, or show us, how they're capable of selling their own flesh and blood into slavery and then telling lies to their own father. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that the sons of Bilhah and Silpah were up to mischief. And so with this in mind, Joseph went to his father and he essentially blew the whistle on his brothers. Now, at this point, some writers accuse Joseph of being this arrogant telltale tit. You know that kind of goody two-shoes who's always running up to their, their, the, the teacher or the parent and saying, you know, they did this, they did that, squealing on their peers. But I think that's a bit unfair. For as we consider Joseph's character in Genesis as a whole, it's evident that he was a man who sought to walk in the ways of God. And so when he saw his brothers acting in a way that he knew was contrary to God, uh, God's ways, he wanted to put a stop to it. Now, of course, Joseph wasn't perfect. So you could argue that he should have approached his brothers before talking to his father. But whatever the case, Joseph was clearly a man of moral character. In fact, this is implied further in verse 3, where we're told that Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. It's very tempting at this stage to go off on a tangent and to start talking about the danger of showing favoritism in a family setting. I've heard many a sermon on that. But while there are certainly lessons we can learn from this, the danger of showing favoritism is not the main point here. Instead, the author is merely showing us the reason for that deep connection between Jacob and Joseph. You see, we're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Now, does that mean that Jacob loved Joseph more because he was this late arrival, this little gift in his old age? Or does it mean that Jacob loved Joseph more because he was the firstborn of Rachel, the true love of his life? 
Well, there probably was a sense in which that was true. But there's more to this statement than first meets the eye. You see, Jacob was once a deceiver. A man who conned his brother, who lied to his father in order to get what he wanted. Yet as God graciously worked in Jacob's life, he was eventually a changed man. After wrestling with God, Jacob was transformed from a man of self-sufficiency and deception into a man of faith and devotion to God. And this transformation was powerfully illustrated through God changing his name from Jacob to Israel. And so by stating that Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age, the author is showing us that Jacob had a deeper love, a deeper connection with Joseph because they had a common bond in the Lord. They both longed to walk in the ways of God. And so Joseph was living like Jacob in his old age with God at the center. And Jacob saw this godly character when Joseph came with this report about his brothers. That's why he gave him the robe of many colors. He recognized that Joseph's character was different from his brothers. And so he gave him this gift in order to set him apart as a godly leader, as someone who would lead the family in the way of righteousness. Of course, Jacob's actions weren't perfect, nor were they particularly subtle. I mean, not only was his, his favoritism unhelpful in terms of the family dynamics, but his decision to public, publicly accentuate his favoritism by giving this extravagant gift was also a bit foolish. Yet at the same time, I'm sure we can understand his actions. For not only did he clearly trust Joseph, but he also had a different relationship with him. In the same way as we often have a deeper connection with those that we share faith with than those who we don't share faith with. It's a different relationship. Well, Jacob's actions didn't go down too well with Joseph's brothers. We're told that when they saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph's brothers began to loathe him. Not only because he had pinpointed their immorality, but also because they could see this deeper bond with their father. And this hatred intensified so much that they couldn't even speak peace to him. They started setting themselves against him. They had this antagonistic attitude towards him. They couldn't even bring themselves to, to pass him and, 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 and announce that shalom, that peace greeting that you would give to someone. Because at the end of the day, they didn't want Joseph to know peace. They wanted him to know nothing but peace. He was a hated brother. But secondly, we see that he was a rejected prophet. Now, in this day and age, 
God communicates to us through his word, the Bible. This is why we are an incredibly privileged people, because we have God's word here in our own language in multiple copies. But in Joseph's day, the Bible didn't exist. And so God communicated to his people through different means. Sometimes an angel of the Lord would appear with a message. At other times, there would be dreams. And this is how God spoke to Joseph here in this instance. We're told in verse 5 that he had a dream. Now, this dream about sheaves had had a, a really clear message. God was showing Joseph that his brothers would one day come before him, bow down before him. And so after receiving this revelation from God, this message from God, Joseph went and he told his brothers about it. Now again, there's some who argue that Joseph was incredibly arrogant in doing this. But again, I think that's a bit of a misrepresentation of what's happening here. For let's not forget that this was God's word to his people at this moment. Joseph had received this revelation from God, and now he was merely presenting it to other people. Now, of course, you could argue that Joseph could have done it a little bit more sensitively, but at the end of the day, Joseph was simply declaring God's word. Yet instead of receiving this message from God, Joseph's brothers rejected God's word through Joseph, and they hated him all the more for it. Well, Joseph had another dream, which he also shared, how the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bound down to him. And while the, the finer details of this dream were different, the underlying message was exactly the same. God was reaffirming his word to Joseph that he would rule over others. That was the significance of the pair of dreams God was showing through the doubling up of this dream that this event was going to happen. Now, of course, we know the fuller details of what these dreams meant, don't we? As readers of Genesis as a whole, we know that there was going to be a famine in the land, that God's people would struggle to find food, and that Joseph's brothers would come and bow down before him in the hope of getting food. But at this stage, these details weren't apparent. All that Joseph knew was that God was revealing his word, his, the future, and that's why he was eager to share it. Joseph's brothers, on the other hand, they simply understood that he was claiming authority over them. And so they hated him for it. And so after sharing this second dream with his father and brothers, were confronted with two responses. At first, Jacob, the father, he rebukes Joseph for being so forthright. Again, probably showing us that he maybe could have shared his dream more sensitively. But even though he rebuked Joseph initially, notice in verse 11 that he took the message away with him and he pondered it in his mind. So clearly he recognized that this was a message from God. This is why he didn't reject it. Even though he didn't fully understand it, he took it away and thought about it. Joseph's brothers, on the other hand, they were filled with rage. Even though this was God's word to his people, his brothers rejected it, and they ultimately rejected God's prophet. Now, that's a simple run-through of the narrative itself. 
But what I want to do now is to spend the rest of our time just thinking about some of these truths and unpacking the different lessons that we can learn from this account. And I want to do that primarily at the start by thinking about some ground level application and then I want us to zoom out and think about the bigger picture, okay? So let's begin with some ground level application. Here in this account, we learn that Joseph was a man who sought to live a godly life. Yet in spite of his faithfulness to God, his life was marked by difficulty. His brothers not only hated him, but they actively opposed him, they rejected him. Now perhaps that seems a little bit surprising at first. You'd imagine someone who was striving to live a godly life would be blessed by God, not face difficulty. Yet the Bible paints a different picture, doesn't it? Not only did Jesus teach us that the world will hate his followers in the same way as it hated him, but you remember how the Apostle Paul also taught that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Joseph's experience in this instance shouldn't be surprising at all. For when we're faithfully living for God, we'll always stand out from the crowd. And people don't like that because they want conformity. And so when people begin to see that our lives are remarkably different from theirs, we will inevitably face ridicule, opposition, and rejection. And that will only intensify as we share God's word with them. I mean, that's all that Joseph was doing here, wasn't it? God had spoken to him through the dreams. He went and he shared that word with others. Yet it not only resulted in his brothers hating him all the more, but it would eventually result in persecution as Joseph was sold into slavery. And what this teaches us this morning is that when we as Christians strive to live a godly life and to faithfully share God's word with others, people will inevitably hate us, oppose us, and reject us. That shouldn't come as a surprise today. Instead, we should expect it. Not that we actively go looking for it, but we shouldn't be shocked when it happens. In fact, we should be more shocked when it doesn't happen. For perhaps that shows us that we're not standing out from the crowd as we should, but that we're blending into the background. Maybe it shows us that we're not regularly or actively sharing God's word, the gospel, with others, but we're staying silent. Joseph lived for God and he faced opposition as a result. Yet as we think about the opposition Joseph faced after sharing his first dream, isn't it interesting he didn't hesitate to share his second dream? And of course the reason for that is because Joseph knew God's word needs to be shared regardless of the consequences. And I find that deeply challenging. For quite often, we, I, we do the opposite, don't we? As soon as we face any form of opposition for sharing the gospel, we tend to draw back from doing it. And the reason for that is because we sometimes value comfort over faithfulness. Well, are we just supposed to suck it up and 
accept the fact that we're going to face opposition and ridicule for living a godly life and sharing God's word? No, of course not. Again, think of Joseph here. After living a godly life and sharing God's word, he did face opposition. In fact, he was going to be confronted with many, many years of suffering. Yet in spite of this, God never once overlooked him. For let's not forget that God had blessed him with these dreams. And so as Joseph was taken into slavery, as he suffered in prison, he could keep coming back to God's promise that one day he would rule over his brothers. And so in those moments when things looked messy and he was struggling to understand, he was struggling to make sense of it all, to see any light at the end of the tunnel, Joseph had something substantial to cling to, the Word of God. And these truths ought to encourage us as Christians today. For this shows us that when we're confronted with opposition for living a godly life, for sharing the gospel, we also have something substantial to cling to, the Word of God. I mean, not only do we have the assurance of God's ongoing presence and help in these moments, but we also have the promise of future glory. You see, as believers in Christ, we have the assurance of a a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us by the power of God. And that means that that, that nothing will ever be able to take our salvation away from us. Even, even if the worst possible thing happened and we were killed for our faith in Christ, we would still have no reason to lose hope. Because we have that promise that to die is to be with Christ, which is far better. This is why it is so important to live in light of God's word every day. For it's only these truths that will enable us to keep pressing on with faithfulness in spite of the opposition, the ridicule, and the rejection that we face. That's some of the ground level application. But let's begin to zoom out and see the bigger picture of what's going on here. You see, by human standards alone, everything in Joseph's life was a mess. He was suffering. A family was needlessly torn apart because of jealousy. Yet even though things looked messy from a human perspective, God saw the bigger picture, and to him it was beautiful. It made perfect sense. He was sovereign over it all. You see, it was the dreams that God gave Joseph that ultimately led to his brother's hatred intensifying. And as we see in the rest of Joseph's story, it was this hatred that would lead to these brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt, a place where Joseph would eventually be elevated to a position where he could provide for his family during famine. And so through the evil acts of men, God was providentially at work providing for and shaping Joseph and his brothers into the people he wanted them to be. But even more than that, God was protecting his gospel promise to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
See, as I said earlier, the book of Genesis begins to unfold this rescue plan of God to redeem sinners. And of course, he would do this through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus, the ultimate hated brother, the ultimate rejected prophet. See, it's amazing how Jesus' life parallels with the life of Joseph here. For in the same way as Joseph was despised and rejected by his own brothers for living a life of righteousness, Jesus was also despised and rejected by his own. In the same way as Joseph brought a message that he would one day rule and his family would bow down before him, Jesus also brought a message that he would one day rule and that all people would bow down before him. Yet his message was also rejected. And as we've seen, the opposition Joseph faced was so intense that it would lead to great suffering in his life. Yet it was through that suffering of Joseph that God would deliver his people. God was sovereign over it all. Well, likewise, the hatred and rejection that Jesus faced was so intense that it eventually led to him suffering and dying on the cross. Yet it was through that suffering and death that sinners like you and me could be delivered from the judgment of God. He was sovereign over it all. Through the evil acts of sinful men, God was bringing his plan of redemption to pass, a plan that would have been jeopardized if God had not also been at work in Joseph's life. It's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? Two situations that look like a mess from a human perspective, yet from God's perspective, everything made perfect sense. Now that speaks to you this morning if you're not a Christian. For here we see God's love for you on display as he works in Joseph's life to protect his gospel promise to rescue undeserving sinners like you and me. You see, the Bible teaches us that we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And that places us under the judgment of God, a position we cannot rescue ourselves from. The gospel teaches us that Jesus came into this world to bear that judgment in our place, to suffer and to die instead of us as the true and ultimate hated brother and rejected prophet. Yet because he rose again, he now offers us, you, me, an undeserved gift forgiveness. That's the good news of the gospel. The big picture that God is unfolding throughout the Bible, but how will you respond to it? In the narrative earlier, there were two responses to the revelation of God. Jacob pondered it over. Joseph's brothers rejected it. What will your response be? Will you reject the gospel? Walk away unchanged? Will you take this message away with you and at least ponder it over in your mind? Or will you go a step further and better right where you're sitting now and just respond by repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus? But as a close, this truth of God's sovereignty also speaks to you if you are a Christian today. For here we're reminded that even though our lives 
seem messy at times, they always make perfect sense from God's perspective. For he is working through every circumstance of our life to conform us into the image of Christ. And that ought to bring us so much encouragement. Because what that means is that our difficulties are never meaningless. I know it feels like it at times, but they are never meaningless, but always purposeful in God's sovereign plan. Doesn't make it any easier, but it does bring us comfort. For this means that even though we might not understand everything God's doing in our lives, we can always trust He's in control and His plans are good. The life of Joseph teaches us that. The life of Jesus teaches us that. And so in those moments when we cannot see the bigger picture and life seems to be so messy, we need to find solace in the unchanging truth that God is sovereign over us. That is the pillow. I think it's Spurgeon said this, the pillow that we rest our head on every night when we go to bed. May God's word be a blessing to us. We're going to sing in response to this truth of God's sovereignty. We're going to sing a beautiful song, um, Sovereign Over Us.